By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the golf podcast that doesn't have a name. How's that for an intro, Adam? Yet. (laughs) (laughs) We can always do Um, this, redo this intro once we have a name for it, but yeah. But for our early listeners, uh, that's all you're going to get for now. So this is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and I'm talking to... Adam Young from Adam Young Golf. And um, we've been wanting to join forces for a while, um, kind of combine our audiences and, and share some different information. So um, Adam, why don't you just talk about yourself really quickly, who you are and what you do, in case people who are coming from my site don't know who you are. I think a lot of them do already, though. I'm a golf coach. I'm a heretic in the industry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at the moment, I am. I, I just look at things differently with the golf swing. Uh, I am a technical coach, but I like to look at other areas of development as well. And I think a big untapped one is skill development. Most people can't define it or understand what it is. And so it's my goal as an instructor to help people understand that and how to develop it. Um, I am an author as well. I suppose if anybody knows me, it'll be, they'll know my book more than myself, which is the Practice Manual, The Ultimate Guide for Golfers. That's something I wrote about five years ago now, I think. Yeah, five, six years ago. And uh, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a website, adamyounggolf.com, where I constantly blog and do new videos and try and get different thought processes out there. Awesome. And this is John Sherman. I'm the owner of Practical Golf. Uh, I'm not a swing instructor. Um, You can think of me as the player coach. Um, I like to approach game improvement from a golfer's perspective. So a lot of the topics I cover on the site are how to practice more effectively, strategy, the mental game. Um, Probably most importantly is just helping golfers manage their expectations 
And at this point, I've also probably tested hundreds of golf products. So I guess I'm a, I'm a experienced product reviewer too. So a lot of people come to my site to see what I think about a lot of the junk in the industry and some of the good stuff. Um, and like Adam, I'm trying to do something different than the golf world has seen before. I think that's why we're interested in joining forces here. I think we're both trying to give golfers a different understanding um, from what they've been taught in the past, which is usually about the technical elements of the golf swing. Um, so we're going to try and cover different topics in each episode. This one, because we're in the dead of winter and it sucks. I know you're in Vegas, but I'm in New York. It's cold here. It's still cold um, here. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, this uh, COVID thing isn't helping. So yeah. um, we're stuck inside. We're practicing. Um, so we thought it would be a good idea to just go over a bunch of ideas we have to for how to practice effectively over the winter. And I think the basic thing we'll assume for this episode is that you're going to have access to hitting balls into a net with a mat. And then, you know, maybe we can talk about the launch monitor stuff and some other training aids, but that's going to be our, our basic assumption here. Does that sound reasonable, Adam? Yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. Um, so let's start with your, your favorite um, topic here. I think if you don't have the opportunity to get a lot of feedback on, on what the golf ball is doing, like if you didn't have a launch monitor showing you the ball flight, um, something that is very overlooked in, in the golf industry. I think it's more popular now because of guys like Adam is, is impact training. So Adam, why don't you just kind of kick that off? You, you've really focused on that with your strike plan. Um, why don't you give people a brief rundown of, of why they should be tracking their impact location with their irons or their driver? Yeah, well, everything is about impact. That ball responds to impact and everything in the result is a result of what happened in that half inch of space where the club is connected to the ball. So I suppose that's the nicest way to start the podcast so I don't have to repeat that cons consistently throughout the series. But um, So you have different things that impact that are really important. We have the distance control factors, which are face strike, so whether you hit heel or toe, and then ground contact, so whether you hit fat or thin. So any ground contact issue is just, uh, or any fat or thin issue is just you haven't hit the ground in the right place. It's as simple as that. And we do have a third one, which is really important, which is the direction of the shot, which is strongly related to the club face direction of impact. When we're indoors, that is definitely the most difficult one to get. But we can practice strike location very well with, with certain feedbacks or bits of feedback that are really, really cheap at the moment. So the first thing I would say, obviously feedback is important for face strike, just getting a can of Dr. Scholl's foot spray or CVS brand if you're in the UK, Dactarin. Uh, any other options there? I think some people use dry shampoo as well. And yeah, I mean, someone once told me they used um, sunscreen, which I thought was ridiculous, to mm. be honest. Uh, I yeah. think the Dr. Scholl's is, is, I mean, you can get it on Amazon. It's like three cans for 15 bucks. That's a, that's a great option. I know you've in the past done like the dry eraser mm -hmm. um, pen, but I just think spraying the face is the easiest option. You, you know, you spray it once, maybe hit five or 10 shots, wipe it, and then do it again. Um, I, I, I've just found over the years that's what i always default back to is the face spray yeah i mean you'd have to spend at least sort of 
$15,000 with launch monitors to get accurate face strike uh, stuff. I have a quad. I'm lucky, a GC quad. Uh, I know TrackMan gives you face strike data as well, but the quad seems to be very, very accurate for that. But obviously, you could just make your own version of that with a, a marker pen or the face spray. So it's, uh, it's a nice, cheap workaround and gives you just as valuable data. So if someone wants to get started with that, let's assume that they've never done this before. Um, in my opinion, the first step is like diagnosing your tendencies. Um, are you a heel striker? Are you a toe striker or all over the place? So what do you recommend to students who you've worked with before? Like what's their first step if they want to say like, okay, I'm going to invest some time in this impact training. Like what do you tell them to do? Yeah, first first thing, spray the face, hit a few shots, see what you're doing on that day. It is very likely that you will be consistent. I'd say 95% of golfers fall into a consistent category. Now, some are consistently close to the sweet spot. Those are going to be the better players. Some are consistently close to the heel or the toe. And usually it's a shock to those players. And obviously... Many players, say for example, someone's consistently close to the heel, they can actually achieve inconsistent results because they hit a little heel, little heel, little heel, and then it shifts a tiny bit more towards the shank, and that Don't ball shoots, <laughs> I've said it, um, that ball shoots 90 degrees to the right. And that player often thinks, I'm inconsistent. And then when you show them their face patterns, they're actually very consistent with it. So as you said, determining your patterns determining what you're doing. Some players, 5% of players, are a little bit random with it, but I find the same developmental routes work for both, whether you have a poor, poor pattern uh, or it's, it's a random spread. So yeah, that's what I would do first. Then I kind of move to awareness exercises. So once I've done that, we might hit a few shots or hit one shot, and before they look at it, I ask them to try and gauge where it was or try and give me an answer. So they'll hit a shot and they say, well, that was off the heel. And then we have a look. And then once it's aligning well, we start to be more precise with that. And I've got players who can hit the ball and tell me within about three, four millimeters where they've hit on the face. So they can hit a shot and say, oh, that was about six millimeters towards the, the toe. And I've got a quad that actually quantifies it in that much detail. Um, so yeah, start start testing yourself before you just hit a hit a shot and just look at it. Try and guess first because that goes a huge way into into um, improving your awareness and understanding and feel of this. And ultimately, like I think one thing that you and I probably both do when we actually are playing golf is is it gives you once you have some awareness of where you are striking it on the face. I think the most important thing is when you understand like, okay, I'm a heel striker. I, I know that's my tendency. And on certain days I'm struggling with that and, you know, to become a better golfer, it, it's a series of kind of micro adjustments you need to make usually while you're playing. Um, so I think one of the main benefits of finding out your impact tendencies is, is knowing when it's occurring, when you can start feeling that um, and then making those adjustments on the course. So then the next step naturally would be, okay, I know I'm a heel striker. I know I'm a toe striker. How do I fix that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think something you and I have discussed separately on our sites is I wrote an article called Fight Fire with Fire, where if I'm struggling with something in my golf swing, 
I just try and do the opposite. And I know there's some other ways to tackle this, but um, you obviously have a lot more experience working with players directly in an, in an instructional capacity. Um, so if you do have that heel striker or toe striker, what is the process of trying to fix that or calibrate it so that they can access the center of the face uh, more frequently, which is obviously the goal of what we're trying to do here? Well, yeah, in terms of looking at someone as mechanical meat, if they're just a bunch of mechanics to me on a swing video, I could go the technical route with that player. And basically, I'd be looking at anything that gets a player closer to the ball than they were at address. So say, for example, someone starts in a certain posture and then throughout the swing, they get much closer to it. Perhaps they drop in height a lot that's going to tend to encourage more fat shots and or more heel shots. And the reverse would be true. Anything that gets a player farther from the ball than they were at address is going to encourage more thin shots and more toe shots. And there are actually loads and loads of different movements in the swing. So there's rotational elements. There's the left arm flexing, extending. I could, I could reel off 20 different things that could contribute to that. And actually every player is their own mix of uh, or their own combination of those variables. So for example, Tiger squats down a significant amount, which gets him closer to the ball, but then, then he adds a lot of forward shaft lean and rotates open. Same with Dustin Johnson, squats down quite a lot, but rotates the hell out of it. Uh, whereas you have Jim Furyk, who stands very, very close to it, and he actually works up through impact. So they balance each other out. You know, standing closer to it is more of a heel-based tendency. And then standing up through the swing is more of a toe-based tendency. So there, there are lots of different combinations that these tall players use to, um, to achieve these consistent impacts. So yeah, when I have a player who has a specific fault, say they are healing it, shanking it, I'm saying it again, to frighten our <laughs> listeners say they're shanking it i have many many options i just have to say let's add something to their swing that gets them farther away from it so i could say let's feel as if you're springing up more through impact i could say let's feel like you're ro rotating open more through impact let's feel like you're pulling back on the handle a little bit more you know pulling the handle in and up through impact uh, so I have lots of different combinations. Hey, this is going to frighten your listeners. I could even say you could flex a lead arm a little bit more through impact if you want. There are guys who do that. Jamie Sadlowski, one of the longest hitters. You've got Ratif Husen. You've got, I mean, I could reel off a ton of guys. Um, Lee Westwood is a great example of it. I've got loads and loads of examples of people who do that. Uh, Garcia as well. So yeah, there are some ways that, would be deemed less textbook that lots of the pros still do. So that would be a technical way of doing it, right? That's the complex way. Let's go the simple way. So what's way. the simple way? So <laughs> someone's saying like, all right, we're going to give them a homework assignment if they listen to this and want to do a few of these drills. Um, after they've gone through the diagnostic portion of the impact training saying like, okay, what's something I, what are maybe one or two things I could do if I'm a heel striker or a toe striker to, to combat that? Well, you've mentioned it already. This is exactly how I think and play as well, is do the opposite. If I'm yeah. standing on the range, if, if, if I warm up or if I'm waking up, I go to the range, I'm warming up and I've got a toe bias tendency. All I do is I use my intention and I say, I'm just going to try and strike a little bit more from the heel. 
and then I calibrate it from there. If that doesn't nudge it into the right area, I say I'm going to strike a little bit more from the heel. I try. I will. I will happily stand there and try to almost shank it. You know, if that if that gets the sweet spot for me, it's rare that I have to do something that extreme, but it does happen. And I posted something the other day on Twitter where it was a trial of ten shots, and they were all within tour average. In fact, I think it was like half of tour average. So it was a really good trial. And I said with that, you guys don't see this, but for every shot within that, I was trying to heal it. So they're seeing on the screen, center strike, center strike, center strike, but they don't see my intention there. My intention was to heal it. So intention does not have to line up with reality. You've just got to get the job done. Now, whether you go the more complex route and you think of uh, you know, squatting down through impact, raising up or rotating, that's fine as well. Or whether you go the simple route, just use your intention like myself, like yourself. Both are viable options. I love the intention route because it's much more, it's much simpler and it transfers. I find it transfers really well to the golf course. And I find that once you master the power of intention and you can shift the strike around just by thinking about it, and it's a trained skill, it's a learned skill, but once you master it, it's there for life and you can use it 10 years in the future, whatever your body's doing. Yeah, and to, yeah, I know we want to move on to other topics here. So I think that would be my number one recommendation too. That's how I practice. Um, so I would say to anyone, first and foremost, just see what you're doing. Get some awareness of what your tendencies are. As I, as I said, I'm a heel striker, and I can tell you, especially with like longer irons and my driver, um, I tend to, that's when I really miss it on the heel. And like Adam said, it's amazing what you can notice when you're actually spraying the face and saying like, all right, I'm literally going to try and hit this thing on the toe. And then all of a sudden I, I see that I've hit it on the sweet spot. Um, it, it's kind of a wild thing to, to do, but it, I, I find it works for most players. And the reason I like it, and I had mentioned this, is that it gets you out of that technical thing. Cause I, I really don't want people thinking about, you know, all of these, uh, swing thoughts of what they need to do to move the strike. I'd rather they figure it out in a more athletic way. Um, so that's your homework right there. Just figure out your impact tendencies and then literally just try and do the opposite and see what happens. And then if it doesn't work, you can complain to us on Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's move on to the next one. And, and this is, this is something that's plagued me because I'm someone who has practiced on artificial turf my whole life. Um, I really haven't had much access to grass driving ranges and because of that, um, I think it's affected my ability to strike the ground efficiently. I'm, I'm a very uh, shallow angle of attack golfer. Mm -hmm. I pick it. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with getting false feedback from mats mm -hmm. over the years. And that's you know, obviously a problem that golfers are going to have when they're practicing at home in the winter. Um, we'll talk about a cool product that I know you kind of we're the first one to see it. I've got it myself called the divot board, which I think can fix that problem. But let's assume people don't have access to the divot board right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think the towel drill is the one that most people talk about. So why don't we just, you know, give people, you've probably done that one way more than I have with students. So just talk about the towel drill and, and ground strike um, when you're dealing with the false feedback from an artificial uh, mat. Yeah, I mean, we're a product of our environment, right? and that's why we have to be careful what environment we practice off. If we're practicing on artificial turf, you'll actually, our brains are amazing. They will find out the most efficient solution for a given environment. 
And actually, when you're on a mat, the most efficient solution is a much shallower angle of attack because any errors are going to be fat contacts and fat contacts get punished less on a mat. Whereas if you were to put someone in a fairway bunker, for example, the environment changes what is uh, what, what the worst shot is. So in a fairway bunker, half an inch fat is much worse. And so players who practice in fairway bunkers like Seve, for example, they start to develop steeper angles of, of attack. So that's one way that I use as a coach. I can change the environment depending on what someone is doing. But to your point of the towel drill, if you are on mats and you're getting away with lots of behind contacts, uh, the towel drill, placing a towel probably about, I say, four finger widths behind I wouldn't want it to go too close to the ball and you want a real yeah, thin then towel. You could, you could brush it, yeah. Yeah, and you can start to get too steep then as well, which might be okay for lots of players who are too shallow. The towel drill is really good because it gets them steeper on it, gets that low point further forwards. Uh, but I do vary that. I make sure that it's not too close. But basically, you place the ball in front of the towel and you try to contact the ground, brush the ground after the towel. If you are to fat it, if your low point is too far behind, you'll be resetting that towel. And if that's annoying to you, which it can be, there are devices out there like the div, um, the fat plate is a good one. So the fat plate is a piece of polycarbonate, I think, and you place it behind the ball. So it replaces the towel. So if you hit it, you hear the audible click. You don't have to go through the rigmarole of setting that towel up again. So it's a little bit, uh, a little bit easier. That divot board thing, I, I finally got it. Because um, mm-hmm. you remember when you posted the first Twitter video of it, I was like, "What the hell is that?" Yeah, it went viral. <laughs> um, yeah, it went crazy because it just it's it it you know I've seen a lot of training aid inventors over the years. I've tested a lot of them, um, and, and to be quite honest, a lot of it's junk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'd agree with that. Yeah. They don't really help golfers. They're kind of. You know, people, I think they have good intentions when they're designing the product, but they're often too complicated, boring. They don't give you great feedback. Um, but this divot board, um, I've been using it the last week, and it's it's really interesting because it, it, it gives you visual feedback on where you strike it. It's like, um, I think you would call them sequins. My, mm-hmm. my children actually have shirts like this thing. They got excited when they saw it where you like brush it in one direction and it changes color and brush it in the opposite direction and it turns into a different color. Um so I, I think that that product, um, yeah. If you Google it, you'll you'll probably find it on Adam's site or the inventor's site. I'm going to post a review soon myself. But um, I think that's a fantastic tool as a diagnostic tool, not necessarily to teach you how to fix it, but at least show you where you are striking it in relation to the golf ball. Um, how have you been working with that thing? Yeah. Well, one of the hardest things is is getting that ground contact feedback and obviously when you're on grass you can get it you can spray a line on the grass place the ball on top and you can see where the divot is starting but when you're on mats it's very difficult to get the towel drill as we said can block off certain things but it still doesn't tell you exactly where you've hit the ground and you can actually cheat the towel drill as well you can thin it Uh, that's why i sometimes replace the ball with guitar picks so it avoids the the thinning element um, but this divot board, yeah, it's brilliant because it, the, the feedback is so clear and so vibrant 
that I haven't had a single person use it yet and go, wow, that's not amazing. <laughs> Everybody who does it goes, wow, that's, <laughs> that's so clear. That's unbelievable. Obviously, they also go, oh, my God, I'm hitting it six inches behind. <laughs> but that's valuable. Yeah, feedback. it's interesting. I, I found my tendency, as, as I said earlier, like I've been measured on multiple launch monitors indoors and my angle of attack is usually with my irons maybe a mid to longer iron it's almost zero um sometimes it's been measured as plus one which is crazy mm-hmm. but i do some bizarre things at impact um, but on that divot board because i'm like kind of i get away with that on the golf course because i guess i'm lightly brushing the grass before i make impact and it's not a problem i don't really hit a lot of shots fat but i can see on that divot board that a lot of the times i am initiating contact with the ground um, a couple of inches behind the ball whereas if you watch like most tour pros who have exceptional low point control um, it's always ball first then ground because um, they're probably a bit steeper than me and then they've just got a much better control over what the club's doing uh, in relation to the ground so i noticed that was one of my tendencies and interestingly as I, as I saw it happening, I'm making adjustments in my swing and moving that line further and further closer to the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's another product out there called the AccuStrike. Um, I actually ordered that. I'm going to try that out as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think you've tried that. I've had the AccuStrike. Um, it's good feedback, definitely, and it is a cheaper product. But I just I found that... It only took one bad hit from someone to uh, to mark it and to leave it. Okay. It was still functional, but... It was just not as durable. Yeah, and the feedback wasn't as clear or as vivid. So it changes from basically a, a, a light green to a darker green. And sometimes it can't. it's not really clear where the ground has been contacted, whereas the div, divot board is much more vibrant. It changes from green to white. So it's very, very clear. It's just it's such a small change, but it is a big difference. And the durability, I find, is, is much better. And you can actually buy replacement strips for it as well. Sorry, I don't want this to turn into an ad for the divot board. But... We're going to, like, that poor guy <laughs> is going to, like, die with back orders. Oh, like, I know. I spoke with him the other day. He's a nice guy. And it's just, yeah. So if you want to order that thing, be careful. It might be back ordered but i think uh, wrapping up the ground strike element of this um, because we do have other stuff we want to talk about um, i think the towel drill is you know probably the 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 bar uh, the least uh easiest way to do this Mm -hmm. um without spending too much money um you mentioned that guitar pick i think that's a great idea as well and you know there are a few products out there like the divot border accu strike um what was the other one you mentioned the fat plate yeah fat plate is something you place behind it so again it stops any fat contacts if you use that with a guitar pick as well you'll get the thin contact uh weeded out as well okay so people can take a look at those um but yeah i think between impact and ground control um again we we i you know controlling where the face is pointed at impact is obviously an incredible skill that's necessary for good ball striking but like we said earlier, you, you, if you're just hitting into a net, you really can't evaluate that other than like looking on the net where you saw the ball. Like I can tell when I pulled or pushed a shot on a net, but you know, it, it's, it's very s- small amount of feedback. So I think between the impact training and that, and those, uh, the towel drill, and perhaps if you purchase one of those products, that'll give you two really good pieces of feedback for what I believe are two incredibly important fundamentals for ball striking. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about and it, it, it's kind of something that I think the golf industry still ignores, and I've talked about it a lot on the site over the last few years, is swing tempo. And 
it's something that people talk about generically in golf, like the, oh, swing smooth. Um, they don't really attach any diagnostics to it. It's like, well, if you swing smooth, what does that mean? And I think it leads golfers down a really bad path. And um, one thing that I've done in my practice over the last four or five years is working with the tempo beats. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's something you don't do it that much. I know you've spoken about it from time to time, but um, you know, I, I stumbled across tour tempo a few years ago. And essentially what we know, and this doesn't go for every golfer, but most really good ball strikers have a ratio in their golf swing. And when I say ratio, I mean the amount of time it takes for their backswing versus the amount of time it takes for their downswing. And a guy named John Novosel kind of stumbled across this doing some video editing on, on tour players. He found that most tour players have almost an exactly three to one ratio in terms of how long their backswing is versus their downswing the tempo of their swing and you know there's a book out there it's been out there for almost over 10 years um but one thing that i practice with i think is incredibly valuable um are the tour tempo beats which there's different speeds there's some slower ones and some faster ones but they're all in that same ratio and i just think it's one of the most powerful practice techniques you could do even if you're at the range and you have feedback of of seeing where the ball's going but most importantly when you're just kind of practicing at home and finding ways to give value to these sessions where you're hitting into a net um i think the tempo training is has been great for my game and i know a lot of readers of my site have gotten in touch with me after they've done it and they're like wow this has really been a game changer for me um adam do you have any experience with tempo beats you know in your what? teaching? I, it's something i haven't looked that in depth at especially not the the version that you're talking about the three to one i have used metronomes in the past with players mm-hmm. and with myself just to uh, i usually set it at 60 to 70 beats a minute depending on the person but a lot, a lot of that is just a mental tool to get people out of a lot of chatter that they have if yep. their if their brain is filled with a bunch of technical and that, information. And that's really the main benefit of it, I think. Yeah, I think, and I think there is, um, there there are some mechanical benefits as well. When you speed up or you get a person's tempo at a certain pace, they they all almost wash out a lot of mechanical inefficiencies. So there's a point where you're swinging so fast back and forth. And, and by the way, 90% of golfers need to swing the club quicker in terms of tempo. And yeah, that's what I'm going to get at. <laughs> yeah. But when you do speed up someone's tempo, a lot of the plane, the extraneous plane movements that they have in the backswing kind of clear themselves up because they have to, because you don't have the time to make a Zorro sign in your backswing anymore. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting from a mechanical, a mental perspective, and even I'm talking to a guy at the moment who's on some onto some really interesting stuff about how the body works, how it sequences itself and the efficiencies within the muscles and how tempo can improve that. So, yeah, they, I think it's a, it's a really good topic and an area I want to explore more. I'll put a post, uh, a link to the post that I initially did four years ago so people can learn more about it. But I think the main thing that... Um, a lot of people who've trained with the tempo beats and, and tracked their tempo have seen is that, and I've noticed this on golf courses and it used to be my problem. I believe most golfers have too slow of a backswing. You know, there again, a lot of people have been told to swing smooth and control their swing. So like you mentioned, because of that, 
They do these long, slow backswings, and it just gives more time for the club to drift and do these strange things. And I used to do it as well. And typically what happens when someone works with the tempo beats are two things. It gets them to quicken the time elapsed of their backswing, which eliminates a lot of those bizarre moves that they're making. Um, And also another thing we found out, you know, guys like Dr. Sasha McKenzie, is that one of the key elements to increasing swing speed is to apply more force in the backswing. Um, so I know a lot of long drive guys will will work with these tempo beats because it gets their backswing going faster, and then that enables them to get even faster on the, on the downswing. Um, and I can tell you from my own swing, I've kind of shifted from someone who had a, my ratio used to be like 3.7 to 1, which meant that I had a very slow backswing compared to my downswing. Um, and I use the Garmin, actually the Garmin approach S60 and the Garmin approach S62 measure your tempo. You can practice with it and it also tracks it while you play golf. Hmm. And what I found was, is when I was playing my worst, I had these slow backswings. Um, and as I worked with the beats over the years, I, I quickened the pace of my backswing to where I'm almost exactly at three to one all the time, or even just below it, like 2.8, 2.7. And just really good things have happened with me for ball striking. I don't think about the technical elements of my swing. Um, so I would just you know, tell people if you're, if you're looking for a new practice uh, technique that could potentially give you some great benefits to your ball striking, um, I would definitely look at the tempo thing. I'll, I'll post a link to that article, but I think it's just been, it's just, again, something that a lot of people don't talk about still. And I, I know it can help a lot of people. So um, we'll put that in the show notes. I think a um, lot of a lot of people mix up rhythm, temp, yeah, rhythm tempo, and, tempo. and yeah, speed. I probably use the, yeah, yeah. And I think you know, tempo is kind of the beat that you have. Boop, exactly. Boop, boop. And that's and that's what the beats do. Like there's an app and you play it. And the difference between using a regular metronome is that it's that's not timed for a golf swing. Mm-hmm. The tour tempo beats, and again, I'm not trying to be a walking ad for them. I literally have no relationship with them, but it's like done. Dun, dun. So it's start, top, hit. So the first time, the, the amount of time between the first and second beat is going to be three times as long as, as the beat that goes from the top of the swing to the downswing. And I've used them before rounds on tournaments to kind of calm myself down, playing the beats. Um, you can do it on earphones. Um, again, it, it's, it's really a great practice tool. So I encourage people to take a look at that if you haven't done it already. Um and in, Let's move on. In, well, I was going to say, in terms of rhythm, um, there's there is a device out there. I, I have I've lost it, but it's called Sonic Golf. But the basic idea of it is I know the inventor. Oh right, okay. Awesome. <laughs> it, I, I he was the physics professor from Yale oh, who right. actually validated the the tour tempo. I actually huh. he was a member of my golf club, and I was playing with him, and I found out it was him. Huh. That hit, he invented that VJ Singh used it and it kind of went away. It didn't really succeed. Yeah, but it, it, the basic concept, it sounds like a lightsaber. So people put yep. these earphones in, they swing back and it goes vroom, vroom. Yep. And so that's the concept of rhythm, right? So when you look at someone like Ernie Els, lots of players say, well, why do I want to swing faster? Ernie Els didn't swing quick. And, yeah. and you say, well, actually, Ernie Els had about 120 mile an hour swing speed for one. And if you put his tempo up, Ernie Els was beep, Perfect. beep, beep, 
beep, you know, from backswing impact. And when you put a player who says, well, I'm trying to slow my swing down because I'm look, I want to look like Ernie Els and you put them side to side and you say, well, Ernie Els has just finished his swing and you haven't even reached the top of your backswing yet. Exactly. And that's the interesting part is it can play tricks on you. Like mm-hmm. if I see a golfer who has a very slow backswing, but a very uh, fast downswing, uh, relatively speaking, in terms of the the ratio, it looks like they're swinging faster, but they might not be. They might be swinging ninety miles an hour. Whereas if you watched Vijay Singh, Ernie Els at the prime of their careers, you know they were swinging one fifteen miles an hour plus, but it looked like they were swinging eighty. And again, golfers took this information and were like, "Oh, I got to swing nice and smooth like yeah. Ernie." And it just doesn't work. So um, Ernie had yeah, great beats, rhythm. Ernie had exactly. Great rhythm. It was just perfect and. Um, but you, you don't know what it is until you can quantify it. So by working with the beats, unfortunately, there used to be some swing analyzers that did it for you, but that market kind of fell apart. You can buy a Zep or a Swing Bite if there's some available on eBay. But the only way to really do it now is through these Garmin watches. Um, that's the last product that has it. So I, I still use it. It tracks it during my rounds so I can actually see what happened to my tempo during my round when my ball striking went uh, poorly. And it, it usually it, I can see it. My my I get out of out of sync, um, and and things start. The timing starts changing in the swing. Um, I thought another good topic, something that people can do during the winter, that I've I've kind of done the last few off seasons for me is it's just like the idea of experimentation, trying something different. Whether it's swing changes you're making with a teacher, um, you're trying some new equipment. Um, I think. The winter is a good time to try something new. Um, and it, Adam, you've done a ton of research into changing motor patterns and stuff like that. But like, what are some of the things that when you've worked with golfers and they've got maybe a two or three month window to try something different, what do you encourage them to do with their off seasons? Yeah, if there, if there are any technical elements that you want to work on, the off season is a perfect time for it because anytime we change our motion, even if it's a better, uh, an improvement to the motion, there can be a period where we go backwards a little bit because all right, the motion might look better on camera. It might even look better on 3D. You know, we can prove our sequence or whatever. But there's still the small stuff that matters might go out of sync for a while, like our face strike, our ground contact, face direction might be a couple of degrees off or something. And that's enough to make the, the result awful. So it can be very difficult to make a major or even a minor swing change, motion change in season, you know, as tournaments are happening. Because... Well, there are loads of reasons for it, but uh, one of them is we don't like, we we don't want to hit it worse when we've got a tournament next week. However, in the winter, it's okay if that were to happen because now we have time to put reps in. We have time to get comfortable with the motion. We have time to ingrain it so then we can place our attention elsewhere. So, yeah, I like to use winter time as a great time for making the swing changes because it doesn't matter. We're not playing tournament golf then. The result in a net doesn't really matter. And in fact, one of the biggest barriers for people making a swing change is where they are pl- where they place their attention. And when you put someone in a net, the result is gone. So they yep. can now direct their attention fully to the motion. And that improves your ability and your control over it. However, if you have to take that golfer onto the course, 
you now have a flag, you have people watching, you have a target, uh, you, you have an outcome rather that is important to you. And all of a sudden your attention is just going off into all these different directions. And we only have so much attention or we can only really place our attention in one place. And so if someone is standing on the tee thinking about the result, they're not going to be able to control and change their motion as well. So that's why net training is good. It, it's called de, I think decontextualizing. You're taking away context. You're taking away the environment. So like I said, it gives you greater control over your focus and allows you to make the change directly. Yeah, I think um... – I'm a huge proponent of, of golfers getting lessons. I think, you know, if you do want to improve your swing, um, you know, cruising YouTube for tips from 15 different instructors isn't the most efficient way to do it. Um, that's a little tongue in cheek, but, um, if you do have the time and, you know, I know we're in a situation where things have to be done remotely, which has actually worked quite well with the golf industry now, because there's a ton of teachers giving online lessons where you can video your swing. Everyone's got great you know, phones to capture video. Um, so I think working in the net, you know, I, my last major swing change was probably seven or eight years ago. And it, it did take me a winter of, I would call it deep discomfort, hitting balls into a net, um, changing my pattern and then sending the videos to the instructor and saying like, Hey, what do you think of this? But it helped that I didn't really have, um, the negative feedback on the golf course where I would just play horribly for a few rounds because, you know, I'm trying to change something major in my swing. So yeah, I would tell anyone if you're kind of on the fence for getting lessons or even making an equipment change or something like that, um, take the off season or the winter to put those reps in so that when the spring comes and you're able to get back on the golf course, um, that discomfort won't be there as much. Not to say that you won't go through, um, some, negative feedback on the course you're going to have to put that into practice while you play um but it it, like adam said i think when you change the environment of of just hitting into the net and and focusing on maybe something your swing instructor told you to change in your swing and you're working on the video you don't have to worry so much about what the ball's doing You're, you're trying to really focus on that 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 change that you're trying to make so um i think that's a great idea and there are all those other experiments like right now I'm doing kind of a wild experiment. Um, I'm thinking of going with two drivers in 2021. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that, Adam? What, what's the reasoning behind that? So this is going to, I mean, I'm going to be doing an article on this. Like this is going to be a thing in the golf industry. They're going to be pushing this. Um, I have a, Callaway sent me their new head and a golf shaft company called Acro, which is a wonderful Canadian um, premium shaft maker. They're making these prototype longer golf shafts. And I've played with the 44-inch shaft the last five seasons, and I've told a lot of golfers to do that because I think it's a great idea. It gives you more control over the ball. Um, I think most golfers can't hit a longer shaft. It's harder for them. Um, But I am experimenting with a 47-inch shaft the last week, and it's kind of been – it shocked me. I'm adding almost 35 yards in distance – and I seem to have similar control over the ball. These new shafts they're making are weighted specifically. So I don't really ever hit my three wood on the course. I just, for a number of reasons, because of my impact conditions, I, I just don't hit my three wood well in approach conditions. And I don't really use it off the tee much. So it just kind of sits in my bag. Um, so I'm doing this experiment where I'm taking the 44 inch shaft and the 47 inch shaft and I'm comparing. I do have a launch monitor to evaluate this. 
Um, but this is something I'm working on over the next month to see if it's something I can put into play that on certain holes on the course where I know I have more room to really let it, let it rip. Um, I might be able to add 30 to 35 yards for a drive, which is worth more than a third of a stroke. Um, so that's something I'm experimenting with, but I, 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 I could definitely do with more, more distance. I mean, I've always been maxed out by speed, my speed, no matter how much I kind of train and do speed training, it doesn't really budge that much. I could probably do more of it. Um, but I've worked always on optimizing my launch. Yep. So launch angle, spin rate, and obviously smash factor, ball speed. So I'm maxed out for, for the speed I have, but I could certainly use a longer longer club shaft and uh, and get more speed in there as well. And I've been trying to do both. Like I've been focusing a lot on fitness. I've been lifting weights, doing super speed training. So I am trying to add speed too, just because it's like a fun project for me to do because listen, it's winter and <laughs> we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I've got probably got more time than usual. Um, so I'm trying to add speed as well, but like you, I, I was kind of maxed out with the 44 inch driver. Like I had optimized everything I could. I'm striking it well. I, my spin rate's good. My launch angle's good. Um, I'm trying to add a few miles an hour of swing speed, but as soon as I put this 47 inch shaft into play, I mean, I hit a drive the other day on my sky track that I was 165 mile per hour ball speed and I flew it almost 285 yards. It was like a 310 yard drive. Like I just can't do that with a 44 inch driver. Um, so it's an interesting, not to say that everyone should do that. Like when I come out with the article, I'm going to explain why it's probably going to be a niche thing that most golfers shouldn't do that. Um, but it's just an example of something that I'm tinkering with my game where it's kind of like a, no risk situation because I'm just hitting balls into my net at home and seeing if I can control this thing. And I, I and if I think I can, I'm going to put it into play in the spring and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think anyone out there who's looking to make some kind of change in their golf swing or their golf game, the winter is a good time to do it. Um, so I would add that to another list of just like trying something completely different um, that you necessarily wouldn't do during the golf season. Because I know, you know, I play a lot of tournaments. I don't like tinkering around in the summer when I'm going to play seven or eight tournaments because I just don't want to mess things up. You know, what I've got is what I've got at that point. I'm just going to try and practice and maintain my skill, so to speak. Well, we'll do another podcast on how to prepare for tournaments as well. So that's completely different yeah, to, how to how to do your winter training, which is why I, you know, in my book, I wrote about periodizing, which means, you know, during you do different periods of practice or different types of practice during different periods. So off season, you're going to be much more technical, maybe exploring things that might be dangerous to do in season. Obviously not going to cause injury, not that kind of danger, but you know, <laughs> might, might open up. Well, did you see my swing recently that? I did. Yeah. Um, I, when I, when you posed the question thing. on Twitter, I, I was going to be a jerk and say like, oh, you just want to look like an idiot, but I didn't write that. <laughs> or my, my first instinct was that you were trying to like pretend like you were hitting it from behind a tree or something, but <laughs> it was a bizarre No, swing. it was... I was doing a little for my next level golf program. I was doing a module on impact and I wanted to prove to people that impact, if, if you get impact correct, the result will be correct or i shouldn't say correct functional if you get impact functional the result will be functional and in order to prove that i thought what's the most extreme thought experiment i could do that could turn into a real experiment and it was to make the worst swings i could possibly and that was just one example of it and basically that example was me trying to reverse rotate my hips 
So in the downswing, I'm actually trying to rotate my hips towards the, the camera behind me, away from the target. And so that's why it looks so awkward and horrible. It did look awkward and, and horrible. Yeah, but the ball went straight down the target, right? It, I lost some distance, but it went straight down the target because it took me two shots to recalibrate that club face direction. And someone said, well, yeah, that's, that's all well and good, but I bet you can't repeat it. So I thought, well, yeah, I probably can't, but let's try it. So I did 20 of them in a row last night and I recorded it. No editing, no cuts on it. So it's all in a row. I did 20 of those ridiculously horrible swings to a 150 yard target. I averaged something like 14 feet away from it. <laughs> now, so now the tour average. Yeah, the tour average is like what, 28 feet? Something 20, like that. Yeah, 25 feet, I think. So, yeah. I mean, it, it was... It was just interesting because for me, even myself, I'm learning constantly when I do these experiments. And I thought, well, I'll probably get close, you know, but I didn't think I'd beat tour average with it. So it even brings a, a question in my mind. Well, if this swing is that horrible, yet I can still not only produce a functional impact, but a repeatedly functional impact. It almost, uh, I try not to be an echo chamber for myself, but it, uh, it almost reconfirms or solidifies some of my beliefs, almost takes me further down my beliefs, unfortunately. Sometimes I try I try to get out of my own beliefs and I end up confirming them even more. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do more experiments like that and see how wild I can take it just to kind of figure out what is really important in technique and what is just uh, window dressing, as a, another coach, Michael Finney, puts it. There's a lot of window dressing in the golf. I mean, we mm. could, that would be a whole other podcast episode about yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the, the aesthetics of the golf swing being way too important. Um, all right. Exactly. So we've got impact training, ground strike. I mentioned some tempo stuff, experimentation, swing changes. Um, any other kind of closing ideas we can have here? speed training the physical stuff as well so i recommend some someone asked is there a program we recommend just search mike carroll's stuff so fit for golf yep. he has loads of good stuff i think we both recommend his stuff Absolutely. most people in the industry yeah. do he's a really good guy yeah so speed training distance control as well so i mean yes you can you have all these different arrays of launch monitors you have the the $20,000 ones that I have, you have $4,000 or is it $2,000? The SkyTrack Sky and the Mevo Plus, yep. really good. If you have the money, guys, I know it's a lot, but if you have it and you love golf, I recommend it. If you don't, there are good ones. I'll, I'll let you say which, which ones are the good ones, John, but there are basic ones that give you distance. So it's not going to give you direction, but just having that feedback about how far you hit it allows you to play games and, and work on strike and see if the things that you're working on are having an effect. Yep. So, I mean, just to give people like uh, insight into what I'm doing, because I, I took the fitness speed thing way more seriously this winter. I'm someone who has always tried to work out, but um, I've, I've tried to make more of a concrete plan for myself. So I'm doing a combination of, you know, a little bit of weight training. I think you know, Mike Carroll is a great resource for me for fit from fit for golf. Um, he has great specific programs for golfers who want to get stronger, faster, all of that. And the one thing that he proved to me is that getting back into weight training is just 
so important because it checks off so many boxes. Um, it helps with your flexibility, obviously the strength and producing speed in your swing. Um, so I'm doing strength training. I am working with um, Super Speed Golf, which I know Mike has had some programs with them. So that's called overspeed training where you're swinging three different weighted clubs. Um, they have a program um, and you're trying to essentially change trick your brain in a way it's, it's kind of like removing the regulator off a golf cart so you do these mm-hmm. drills three times a week where you're just swinging as hard as you possibly can with three different weights and over time you know you, you, your swing speed does increase it's helped me quite a bit so i'm doing a mixture of all these things um and then we mentioned the launch monitors there's a bunch of these i've kind of tested all of them i have you know we have a part on my site so if you go to practical golf and look at the deals section um i've worked with a lot of these companies to give readers i know because there's such tremendous interest in these devices to give them better deals and stuff um but what's good about the the cheaper launch monitors and i say 500 dollars and below they're obviously not going to give you the data that skytrack at two thousand dollars is a great tool i use it um, or the GC quad or track man, which is going to take you in the $20,000 range. But, you know, if you are hitting balls into a net, if you get a launch monitor like the PRGR, which is only like 200 bucks now, it measures your swing speed, ball speed, um, and estimates your distance. And you can play games with yourself where you're just like hitting wedges and you're going to say like, all right, I hit that 150 yards. Let's go 40 yards. Let's go 60 yards. Um, or you're measuring your impact training. You want to really see play a game with yourself well how fast can i get my ball speed with my driver um or if you're doing speed training um i use the super speed sticks with the prgr to track my swing speed while i'm doing the exercises because you need that feedback to see all right i gave it everything i had how fast was that one um so there's a number of these devices the prgr the the voice caddy ones uh sorry swing caddy ones are very good the rapsido mlm is now one of the better ones at at the higher end of that category because they added net functionality recently. But um, as Adam said, you can at least play some games with yourself. You're not going to see direction. You're not going to see all the data that you would get from a higher priced item, but you can create these kind of games for yourself to say like, all right, I hit that seven iron 150 yards. Like what can I do to maybe hit it 155 or 160? Like what am I going to change in my swing? Or if you're working on like that tempo training that I said, like seeing the feedback it does, um, with your swing speed, it might increase it, uh, and your ball speed. Um, so they're fun little devices to play around with and just, you know, for not a ton of money, they can give you a little bit more feedback than just hitting the ball into the net. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the games I like to play is, uh, and this one really helps people with their strategy. Cause we know that people always overestimate how far they should hit the ball yeah. and they, they've just picked the wrong club for the, the distance. So I used to play a game where I'd say, okay, call out your seven iron distance. And they'd say, I hit it 150. And I'd say, okay, you've got 10 yards either side of that. So you can hit it up to 160 and down as low as 140. And then they'd hit a bunch of shots and we'd see out of say 10 shots, how many got within that 20 yard range. And what you'd find is that if you just shift their, if you shifted their desired distance down a bit they would get maybe an extra 20 or 30 percent of shots within that range so if they had gone with 140 instead of 150 as their 7 iron as their stock 7 iron instead of only getting 
10% of their shots in the in the target area, they would get 30 or 40. So now that really trains them to understand, okay, my seven iron, yes, I can hit it 150, but I would produce better outcomes if I see it as my 140 club. So yeah, giving yourself that yardage and, and going 10 either side of it is a pretty good game to play. Yeah, and I think the, the most... The biggest one for me that I, I literally start every single practice session with this, whether I'm on my sky track or whatever it is, um, it's really those intermediate wedge distances. Um, so that's really the area of the game where you do have to develop a feel for different yardages. Um, so I'll take between 40 to 80 yards to start every practice session. And my son would used to join in with me. Like he would just call out a number, be like 63 yards. And then we'd see how close I could get it. And he's like 47, 52 um, and I wrote this in an article once where how I practice wedges, where I try and work on my stock yardages, like, all right, that's my 40 yard field. That's my 60 yard field. That's my 80 yard field. So I'm hitting the same shot to those distances over and over again. And then I test myself. Okay. I say 74 hit it. What did I think it went? See what the launch monitor says 62. And that, um, I believe is probably one of the more, um, fruitful exercises you can go through with any launch monitor is working on uh, those intermediate wedge distances definitely um, so yeah, your brain will start the link I, I found the more i did that because always those the 60 and 70 and 80 yards would just i would eyeball it yeah and you'd kind of feel it and obviously if you're practicing a lot outdoors that can work but when I started practicing indoors with a launch monitor and getting numbers for it, so you, you get to that point where you can just say in your head 60 or 70 and your brain pulls out the right force with that. So it's like your brain is linking up the number with the force amount so that when you get on the course, you don't have to use the visual anymore. I don't have to look at the flag as I'm, and, and feel my way there visually. I can just say, okay, this is 70 yards. And then I go into my own little internal bubble and I, I go back to practicing in a launch monitor. So I think it just adds another dimension to your practice when you have that. Practiced. That's literally what I do. I mean, I, everything you just said is literally how I feel on the golf course. Cause those were the shots that gave me, those were the shots that terrified me the most, I would say six, seven years ago. Um, I would just step up to those shots and just have no idea what I was doing technique wise. And I just didn't have that distance control memory either. Uh, and now I step up to those shots and I just know it. I'm like, all right, 62 yards. That's my feel. I go and I execute. Mm -hmm. um, and not that those are the most important shots on, on the course for a golfer, but, you know, for a lot of players who are, you know, let's face it, most recreational golfers are missing more than 50% of their greens in their round. Um, so whether they're on par fours or par fives um, on their third shot on a par five or even a par four, um, they're going to be faced with a lot of situations where they have to control the distance of their wedge shot versus, you know, when you're hitting seven, eight, nine irons, those are mostly stock yardages. You're just making full swings and you're hopefully striking it properly and being honest with yourself about how far you can hit it. Whereas, you know, wedge technique is different. You have to earn that feel through practice. So um, I think that's probably one of the best things I've gotten from launch monitors in addition to working with my driver. Um, so I think we covered a lot. I'm looking, what do we do? We're at 55 minutes here. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. we should let these people go already, even if they made it. I mean, it's, has anyone even made it this far? Is it just me and you in this bubble? Um, all right, let's sign off. Adam, where can they find you? 
adamyounggolf.com, on Twitter at adamyounggolf, on Instagram at adamyoung.golf, I think. And what can they buy from you? Go plug something. Uh, if if you're a real golf geek, Next Level Golf, that is my ultimate program. There's about 60 hours of content in there. If you just want something more to the point and deals with a specific issue, if you have ground contact and face contact issues, Strike Plan is good. If you miss more directionally, slices, hooks, pulls, push, Accuracy Plan is the best product for you. All great products. I've learned from every single one of them. Um, and yourself? You can find me at practical-golf.com. Um, there's some British guy out there who's still hijacking practicalgolf.com. I'm not going to pay really? him, though. Yeah. When I first <laughs> That's started not this, me, by the way. Yeah, it's not you. But some guy, when I first started the site, he's like, you're going to pay me for this. And I was like, no, I'll just do it with the hyphen. <laughs> so here I am six years later. Uh, it's practical-golf.com. I have close to 400-something articles on there that will help you get better at different parts of the game. Um, you can check out our deals section. We've got deals on a lot of the products we spoke about. And you can find me on Twitter at, at PracticalGolf. Um, thanks for listening. Um, if people have feedback, you know, reach out to us on social media. Contact us through our websites, other topics you want us to explore. We're going to try and make this a more permanent thing. And uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>